the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, July 19th, 64 AD. I'm Sally Helm. In the shadow of Rome's great Circus Maximus, things are quiet. It's nighttime, so there aren't as many Romans around. During the day, the Circus Maximus is loud and crowded and full of life. This huge arena, ringed by arches, can hold over 150,000 spectators. It's the place to go to catch a chariot race, a gladiator fight. The great poet Ovid once wrote that it's also a good place to pick up a girl. And it's not just the racing or the flirting that draws Romans to the Circus Maximus. All around this huge stadium, there are shops and stalls and restaurants and entertainment. It has the feel of a carnival. You can come here to get your fortune told or to get into a bar fight. And tonight, it will be destroyed. For a long time, this area had been prone to flooding. But previous emperors had it fixed up so that wouldn't happen anymore. And now, ironically, the big problem is fire. There was a fire back in 36 AD that started in a basket shop, all that wicker made for good kindling. And tonight, in a shop near one end of the arena, it happens again. But this time, it's much, much worse. Some unknown merchandise catches fire. The flames tear through the area around the Circus Maximus and then spread to the wooden upper stories of the arena itself. From there, the fire crawls to the bottom of Rome's Palatine Hill, home of the city's rich and famous. And then, it just keeps going. In all, the fire will burn for nine days. It is one of the greatest disasters in the history of Rome. And in the days and weeks afterwards, a rumor starts to spread that the emperor, Nero, just stood by and let it happen. That he sang some epic poem and played his lyre while the city burned. Maybe that he even set the fire himself. But today, modern scholars tell us we shouldn't believe those old stories. If you look a little closer, some of the details just don't add up. So who was Nero? the notorious emperor who supposedly fiddled while Rome burned. And how did a story that was essentially fake news last for nearly 2,000 years? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Great Fire of Rome took place almost 2,000 years ago. But Tony Barrett, who's an emeritus professor of classics from the University of British Columbia, 
he told us this ancient disaster came alive for him when he was just a kid. My future career was determined for me when I was about 12 years old and I lived in a small mining village in the north of England and I went to the movies to see Quo Vadis. The great blockbuster of the time with Peter Yusnov portraying the Emperor Nero and I was just blown away by the movie. Quo Vadis tells the story of Nero's reign, including his role in The Great Fire. I can still recall him playing his lyre while the flames were burning in the background. I am Nero, the artist who creates with fire that the dreams of my life may come true. I could almost go through the movie scene by scene. It made such a vivid impact on me. That scene in Quo Vadis reflects the popular image of Nero. The phrase, fiddling while Rome burns, has become an expression unto itself. It has gradually evolved now to describe someone completely focused on his own interests, on his own trivial pursuits, rather than on the other problems that he should be giving his attention to. But, Barrett says, Nero's alleged fiddling during the fire is almost certainly a myth. Which isn't to say that Nero was an amazing ruler. Nero was not a competent emperor. I suspect, however, that the accounts of his behavior during the fire was much exaggerated for rhetorical purposes. To understand who smeared Nero and why, we have to start much earlier and put ourselves in the world of violence and deception in which Nero came of age. He's born in the year 37 AD. His father isn't of much note. He's just a Roman noble. But his mother, Agrippina, comes from royal blood. Her great-grandfather was Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, a ruler people still look to as a paragon of stability. At the time of Nero's birth, Agrippina's brother, Caligula, is the emperor. And he has a reputation for instability. So Agrippina sees an opening to increase her own power. When Nero is two years old, Agrippina conspires with her lover to try and overthrow Caligula. The details aren't clear, but it doesn't go well for her. Her lover was put to death. She was forced to walk into Rome, carrying the ashes of her dead lover in an urn, and then she was sent out into exile. The young Nero finds himself separated from his mother. Then his father dies and leaves him with an aunt. She raised him. It didn't do her much good because he eventually put her to death, as he did many other people. Yes, Nero will eventually get his own reputation for brutality, perhaps influenced by growing up around so much murder and death. Caligula is eventually assassinated by his royal guard, He's replaced by the Emperor Claudius, who goes through three wives. One of them is executed for conspiring against him. And Claudius's fourth wife is Agrippina. He lets her return from exile, and he adopts her son. And the picture we have is that from that point on, Agrippina worked night and day to promote the potential career of her son Nero. 
this is something of a, of a cliche in the Roman world of the powerfully ambitious mother. Of course, Roman women were not allowed to have an official and direct part in politics. They weren't allowed to hold office. So if they were going to have power and influence, it would be through their husbands or through their sons. Of course, when it comes to Agrippina's plans for her son, there is an obstacle. Claudius is still emperor and very much alive. So in uh, 54, Agrippina set about to murder her husband. The story is that Agrippina knew that her husband had a particular weakness. He loved eating, he loved his food and drink, and he was particularly fond of mushrooms. So, naturally... She got a particularly delicious mushroom, a lovely-looking mushroom, and she put poison on it. And Claudius, of course, couldn't resist it. Claudius dies, murdered by Agrippina. Though, Barrett notes, we do have to take the whole mushroom story with a grain of salt. The sources on Roman history tend to be generally hostile towards emperors. And... They're even more hostile towards the powerful women, especially their wives. And so Agrippina is painted in the the darkest possible terms. It is clear that upon Claudius's death, everything is ready for Nero. Agrippina had done the groundwork very, very well. She had had a careful policy of having all the officers of the Imperial Guard replaced by her favorites. And when Claudius's death is announced, Nero becomes the emperor at 16. He's seen as this golden boy. The Roman Senate receives him with open arms. He is, after all, from the great Julio-Claudian dynasty, related to Caesar and Augustus. He told the senators that he was willing to be guided by them and in the way he would rule, that he would take the Emperor Augustus, whose name was still revered, as his model, and the Senate lapped it up. But Nero's position is still not totally secure. Claudius had another son, Britannicus, who was about to come of age. And the Roman sources say that Nero decides to have his stepbrother killed. And he decides he'll use the same poisoner who had helped Agrippina murder Claudius. She practiced on various animals with various poisonings and finally got it to work on a pig. Apparently that's (laughs) what one should use to practice poisons on. The same day the pig is killed, Nero has the poison brought to a banquet. Britannicus, of course, had a food taster before he drank his wine. It was sipped by uh, the food taster. But the Romans would add hot water to their wine. And very cleverly, we're told, Nero added poison to the hot water, not to the actual wine. According to one account, the boy dropped dead at the very first taste. But, and you might sense a theme... We have to be skeptical of some of these stories about Nero as well. Britannicus was epileptic, and modern scholars tend to feel that it's very, very likely that in fact he died of an epileptic fit. 
Which, again, isn't to say that Nero doesn't deserve his reputation for brutality. For the moment, though, he doesn't have any further murderous plans that we can tell. His claim to the throne is relatively safe. His mother has made sure of it. Agrippina was a very, very skillful uh, politician. She was able to manipulate those around her. But the one person she couldn't control, like many mothers before and after, I'm sure, she couldn't control her teenage son. Nero comes to resent any reminders that he owes his reign to his mother. And about two years into that reign, he begins pushing her out of power. He bans her from living in the palace, takes away her personal bodyguards, and then he begins to get more and more paranoid that she's plotting against him, which may have been true, we'll never know for sure, but he takes the most drastic of measures and decides to have her killed too. We're never going to know the true reasons, and I'd rather suspect myself that they were probably more psychological than political. I think Nero had very serious mother problems, as it were. One version of the story goes, Nero has a special boat built. It's designed to collapse in on itself, killing the passengers. He invites Agrippina to visit his estate in Naples. He's friendly and sends his mother off boating with a warm goodbye. But... The collapsing mechanism didn't work properly, and she she leapt into the sea, and she, she swam to shore. Apparently, she was a very good swimmer. When Nero discovered this, he was terrified of what she was going to do with him. And so, he sends some loyal soldiers to finish the job. And we're told that just before she died, Agrippina presented her womb to her assailant and said, strike here. This is the spot that bore Nero, so strike here first. So he murdered his mother in 59. The response of Romans was to congratulate him. Nero explained to the Senate that his mother had been plotting to take over Rome. And of course, the Romans had this fear of the other powerful woman. And so Nero remains extremely popular. He's also accused of other murders in those early years, but... These are all what you might call intramural. These are all in-house murders, (laughs) right? And the Romans would make a distinction between in-house murders and the murders of the nobility generally. They recognized that, at times, an emperor had to be ruthless. So these murders don't hurt Nero's image. Nevertheless, Barrett said, the murder of his mother marks a huge turning point in his rule. After the death of Agrippina, he seems to have lost any sense of restraint. Three years later, Nero has his wife, Octavia, killed on charges that she was having an affair and conspiring against him. It is a horrible death. Rome could be a pretty brutal place, but it was quite out of character for a wife to be put to death in that way. This suggests something, I think, very amiss in Nero's psyche. I mean, we can't psychoanalyze people 2,000 years later, but it it, it does seem that there there are signs of something strange. 
Because he keeps killing all the women, basically, around Yeah, him. yeah, that's, yeah. When Nero has Octavia killed, he's been in power for nearly eight years. But he's still just 25 years old. The Roman Empire at this time stretches from modern-day England in the northwest to Egypt in the southeast. It has a vast bureaucratic structure. There are taxes to be collected, rebellions to be quelled. And historians suggest that Nero wasn't all that interested in the day-to-day of Roman governance. For the ordinary Romans, this didn't seem to matter. In fact, they seemed to enjoy the fact that he, that he was a bit of a playboy. Nero spent much of his time pursuing the arts and entertainment. He became a noted poet, a performer. He would go on the stage and he would read his poetry and accompany himself on the lyre. Nero also embraced chariot racing, competing before tens of thousands at the Circus Maximus. People loved it. He was still an immensely popular individual. But 10 years into his rule, all that would change. The fire is very clearly a turning point. His image changed dramatically. I think Nero may well have survived and died in bed if it had not been for the fire. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Summer in Rome is marked by the arrival of the Sirocco. These hot, dry winds that blow in from Africa. And sometimes those winds spelled fire. And on the night of July 19th in the year 64, flames spring up in a shop outside the Circus Maximus. Then they spread to the racetrack itself with its wooden upper stories. And, propelled by the winds, they devour the buildings on the Palatine Hill, where Nero's palace is, along with homes of the Roman elite. From there, the fire spreads through the wooden high-rise apartment buildings where poorer Romans live. Historians later described what this would have been like. People running around in panic, so overwhelmed with despair that they that they leapt into the flames. So we have very, very vivid descriptions of what happened. The problem for the historian is that these descriptions are very generic. You think they could apply to any great fire? Yes. 
when we're talking about this fire, we have to talk about where we're getting our information. Because the story will later be used as part of a concerted campaign to smear Nero. And the misinformation will get passed down for thousands of years. So, there are three main historical sources that describe this fire, by three ancient Roman historians. Cassius Dio, Suetonius, and Tacitus. Barrett said they all have to be read with skepticism, though Tacitus is perhaps the most reliable. But they're all writing at least 50 years after the fact in a particular political context, which we'll get to. And they all go out of their way to make Nero look terrible. Two of the historians, Suetonius and Dio, claim that Nero started the fire. But Barrett says... That's nonsense. If someone is going to burn down a city, you're going to have to burn it down at various points to make sure that it works. You wouldn't just light one spark by the Circus Maximus and hope for the best. Plus, Tacitus says at the time of the fire, Nero wasn't even in Rome. But when it was clear that it was serious, he hurried back. And when he got there... We're told by all three sources that Nero, having gone back to Rome, he then went onto a high tower. He looked out over the inferno and he sang his great epic on the sack of Troy. This is the scene that has defined Nero for generations. The one portrayed on film in Quo Vadis, 1,887 years later. Suetonius and Dio say that the fiddling happened for certain. Tacitus says it was just a rumor. And Tony Barrett says there's no reliable evidence that this ever took place. Plus, if you read some of the sources carefully, you can see Nero in a much different light. Nero went out there and actually took part in fighting the fire. He was rushing from building to burning building. So this is far from just fiddling while Rome burns. Tacitus is the only historian to write about these heroics, and he actually tries to paint them negatively. We're told, well, he did this just to save his own palaces. He didn't care about the rest of Rome. Even though Tacitus also tells us that Nero set up shelters for those displaced by the fire. He let Romans stay in the royal palaces. Tacitus spins that into a cheap play for popularity. Then he tells us that after the fire, Nero rebuilds the destroyed neighborhoods with new construction codes. The streets had to be wider to prevent future fires from spreading so easily. And even that got criticism. We're told that people grumbled that the streets, because they were wide, they didn't provide as much shade as they (laughs) had in the past. So... Why does the story told by these three historians paint Nero in such a negative light? Tony Barrett told us it's not because Nero was murderous and brutal and bad, though he was. Barrett's argument is that the later smear campaign actually had everything to do with the fire itself. Remember, the fire wiped out homes on the Palatine Hill where Rome's elite lived and where Nero's palace stood. And afterwards, the emperor decides to rebuild on an even grander scale, a glorious palace. He calls it his Domus Aurea, literally golden house. 
And to pay for it, he raises taxes, especially on the wealthy. This caused great resentment. Here they are, they're bankrupt. A lot of the senators have lost their wealth. They've lost their homes. And what do they see? They see this great palace being erected in the center of Rome. Even before this time, some of the elites had looked down on Nero. They thought he was acting a little uncouth or crazy. The senatorial elite were perhaps not necessarily happy with Nero's behavior, with his chariot racing, with his performances on the stage, but they were willing to go along with it because everyone was doing well. The empire was stable. The administration of Rome was stable. When the elite lost heavily as a consequence of the fire, they then turned against him quite seriously. The year after the fire, in 65, a conspiracy emerges against Nero, led by a Roman senator. Nothing comes of it. This was an incompetent conspiracy, but it was a widespread conspiracy. After this, Nero's grip on Rome continues to unwind. Eventually, a Roman governor is able to wrest control from Nero and convince the Senate to name him emperor. Nero is more or less abandoned except by the members of his household. And so he knows that it's all up for him. And so early in June, he finally commits suicide. He, he stabs himself with a dagger. He has to be helped by one of his attendants to push the dagger in. And as he dies in his famous words, what an artist dies in me. Nero's death leads to a period of instability called the Year of the Four Emperors. And then, in the year 69 AD, the Emperor Vespasian takes control and establishes the Flavian dynasty. And it's in this period that the story starts to take hold that Nero was, in fact, the arsonist. Nero was to blame for the fire. The Flavians had good reason to paint Nero in a negative light. They are a new upstart dynasty, and they want people to look back on the old rulers and think, we don't want to go back to those guys. That would help cement the Flavians' power. So they make Nero, the last of the Julio-Claudians, look as terrible as they possibly can. And later historians draw on sources that originate during this time. They also have their own biases. Tacitus tends to make all emperors look bad. Dio and Suetonius love a colorful story, so they play up anything dramatic. And there's another big factor that plays into Nero's image and legacy. Some historians, including Tacitus, wrote that Nero blamed the fire on a small but growing sect of Jewish people called Christians, and that Nero then persecuted the Christians for having started the fire, making him a villain in their eyes and therefore a villain to much of the world for generations to come. Barrett told us Nero did mistreat the Christians in terrible, punishing ways, so he deserves his bad reputation among them. But the record on whether the fire itself had anything to do with this is mixed. And nailing down that story is a very thorny problem. It is the most complicated and intriguing problem of the whole of Roman antiquity. Barrett sees parallels between Nero's story and the way information spreads today. 
I've studied this period because I love it and I, I enjoy it. But I do think that I have benefited from it because it has enabled me to look at later history, much more recent history, with a much more cautious eye. And I, I frequently see stories and I say to my friends, you know, I just don't believe that. I, I don't believe that. So, oh, yeah, it's, 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 it's there, it's there. We're told this, we're told that. So, yeah, I, it just doesn't look right to me. I can just see Suetonius writing this sort of thing. And then, six months later, it comes out, yeah, the story was a fabrication. Barrett says, in antiquity and today, there's often a piece of the story that is true. The kernel of truth, the, this this nut of truth in the center, is expanded upon and elaborated and gains a momentum. And that momentum becomes, in a way, more important than the truth itself. The truth being, in this case, that while Nero wasn't a perfect emperor, he did not simply fiddle while his city burned. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And if you want to get in touch, shoot us an email at our new email address, historythisweek at history.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We would love to hear from you. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer, and our editor and sound designer is Bill Moss. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.